Hey, player two, you're awake. Hi, I'm Kitty M, the All Geek. I'm your guide. Through the land of Pod, anything geeky that happens in your world reverberates through this one. This week is all about Star Trek Discovery and whether Michael Burnham is actually culturally Vulcan, Hulk in the new Thor movie, the Justice League trailers, oh, and we're definitely talking about Big Mouth and Blade Runner 2049, are you kidding me? Plus Star Wars, who is the last Jedi? I know you think you know the answer, I don't think you know the answer. Come on player two, let's roll. Hey, player two, come in, sit down. I have got most of the stuff off the notice board, which has made all the other questers really, really upset because we took all their quests. So let's just get into the news, okay? Did you see the New Mutants trailer? It looks like X-Men crossed with Amityville Horror. I'm kind of into this. It's a good departure from the usual, oh, look at these kids with the superpowers storyline. And I have to wonder about the choice of Pink Floyd's brick in the wall. Like, what if that's a hint, right? That none of this is real. We don't need no thought control. Jean Grey isn't the only person who can control minds. What if all these kids are living in a nightmare scape created by Emma Frost? I know, that's probably a silly idea. Or is it? Yeah, might be. Well, that's what they want you to think. There's a grey area here, and I'm I'm ready for that. No grey areas with Star Wars this time, though. Which is interesting, because only Siths deal in absolutes. Yeah, I went there. Apparently, Darth Vader's comment, no disintegrations, has been explained in a novel. Thank the gods. It was keeping me up at night. How did I manage to get through all those sleepless nights with, well, wait, I don't, I don't care. But what I do care about is the trailer for the new Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. Not completely thrilled with the director being on Twitter like, yeah, it's Luke. Uh, Luke is, is The Last Jedi. And everyone acting like this is old news that has always been confirmed. But it's not, because it was never really confirmed. And before you at me, just hang on, okay? The arguments for how this has already been confirmed, that Luke is the last Jedi... First off, that Yoda says, When gone I am, the last of the Jedi you will be. Well, that's not definite. He says the last of, not the only. Not the last Jedi, the last of the Jedi. Which means there's the possibility there can be more. Before you start in on me reading into things, keep in mind that the Jedi are sneaky rebel scum who have always had a way of making us think they're saying one thing when they're saying another. In the scrolling text of The Force Awakens, they say, Luke Skywalker has vanished. In his absence, the sinister First Order has risen from the ashes of the Empire and will not rest until Skywalker, the last Jedi, has been destroyed. Which I know how you think that means they're talking about Luke Skywalker. That family gets around. It's not like they haven't done a switcheroo with a Skywalker before now. Also, last can just mean most recent, not end of the line. I'm kind of hoping the director is playing with us all and not just explaining every little thing in Star Wars. Because when you try to explain every little thing in Star Wars, you get midichlorians. The trailer is awesome though, and I do want a direwolf ice pop because they were my favorite Pokemon in the entire trailer. They're better than Porgs. You can try and fight me, but I will be right about this. Speaking of Pokemon, there are two big stories about that at the moment. Firstly, CNN is reporting that Pokemon Go was used by Russian-linked meddling. 
And the headline sort of makes it seem like Pokemon Go was hacked. But the full story is that groups were set up on social media to incite racial tensions in the US, which is different from hacking. Well, it's kind of like hacking, but it's more like social engineering. I remember when Pokemon Go came out and everyone was super excited about it, but then it really highlighted how something as simple as wandering around looking for Pokemon is a safe task for some people, but a highly dangerous one for others. The important thing is that it seems like not the game itself, but making communities around the game was the thing being used, so that's probably something we should all just be aware of in general. On a much lighter note, Mimikyu is getting a Z move in Pokemon Sun Moon Ultra game, and I can't wait for it now. I love that. I'm going to get that game just because of Mimikyu's Z move. Because I am an easily swayed consumer. That's why I became a Thor fan after seeing the trailer for Thor Ragnarok. Speaking of Thor, which was kind of maybe spoiled a bit because Mark Ruffalo totally streamed part of it that he wasn't meant to stream part of, Hulk's story is getting bulked up, starting with the Thor Ragnarok movie. So they can't really justify a standalone Hulk movie, and historically speaking, those have not gone amazingly well. But Mark Ruffalo is a lovely person, and I want only good things for him. So the Hulk story is getting woven into three movies set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because while the Hulk is all about rage, he's more than just that. It's disappointing for me, I wanted him to just be about rage. We'll get to see the final part of the three-part arc in Avengers 3. You know what won't be getting a two, though? Dogma. Dogma was the first Kevin Smith film I'd ever seen, and I would say one of the more accessible for newcomers to his work. That and Jersey Girl, which is an underrated film. Dogma is about a woman who's responsible for stopping the entirety of existence, not just life on Earth, but life everywhere, from being blinked into a void. I became a Silent Bob fan immediately after seeing this, and a Kevin Smith fan not long after. His work speaks to my sensibilities. Also, there was a poo monster in Dogma, and I'm a very immature person. So, you would think that news that a second Dogma movie isn't happening would be the opposite of what I would want. It is not. There is no need for a second Dogma movie. But, there is meant to be a Mallrats TV series in the works sometime, so we can hold out for that. Another thing we're waiting for? New Justice League. Their trailer looks amazing. And you know why? It's because those bad guys look like The Reach. This is getting so sci-fi so fast. The Reach are robot bugs, who are totally terrible. Their technology is what allows Blue Beetle's outfit to work. You know Blue Beetle. If you don't know Blue Beetle, get to know Blue Beetle. He's a really cool guy. If the bad guys in the Justice League movie are the Reach, it opens up the whole DC cinematic universe in so many different ways. It means we'll get to see the Justice League come into their own in a tremendous way. What they can't do when it's just fighting humans. And it means we'll be able to mix sci-fi and comics. And I'm of course here for that. You may have noticed Player 2. I'm a big Ben Affleck fan. And here I am mentioning movies that have Ben Affleck in them. But I haven't mentioned him. (sighs) Well, it's because we've got lots to get through. So let's just get into it, Player 2. We'll catch more of the happenings in The Land of Pod when we get back. But just before we get on to the main stuff, I, I think we need to stop by the track. Here we are, player two, at the garbage tip. I know we usually go to the trash fire, but I thought, no, straight to the tip this time. If you're new to the land of pod, occasionally we need to take out the trash. Today is no exception because of all the Weinstein stuff. 
You know, it almost stopped me coming to the Land of Pod. I've been trying to work out whether being a geek is really worth all of this. Not necessarily because of Weinstein. I mean, he's responsible for a lot of the movies I love. But more because it made me start to realise that a lot of the things I really connect with are made by people who are trash. What broke me, though, was the Ben Affleck groping allegations. It wasn't surprising because Ben Affleck's terrible behaviour has been pretty well documented. And his support of his brother is just... gross. I get their family, but I'm hoping words were exchanged behind the scenes, but still... Ew. With even more allegations of Ben Affleck being a gropey creep, I just... I thought that stuff was behind him. That he'd done the decent thing, apologised to all of the people he'd hurt back then... But it's not behind him, and he hasn't dealt with it, and that sucks. So it rattled me, and it made me wonder why it is I like so many things that are created not just by problematic, but downright trash human beings. Is it because I'm terrible too? The answer is probably yes, but maybe it goes deeper than that. And I don't know how you're feeling with all of this player too, but you might be wondering how this sort of thing happens. Why, someone like Ben Affleck, who has been articulate and a passionate voice in support of people who are marginalised. Do you remember when he took Bill Maher to task in 2014? How that guy can be the same guy who gropes women. Here's why I think it happens. I don't have a degree in this, so I could be wrong. But it's because people are jerks, who don't always live by the values that they hold dear. Especially when they're in an environment that doesn't require them to. Maybe the best thing to come out of this whole mess is that we're finally starting to create environments that demand people do better, rather than just assuming that they will. And I don't know why it's this guy, but I really need Ben Affleck to do better. Because he's hurt people, a lot of people, and saying just because it was allowed doesn't mean you should have done it. So he needs to make amends, and not with his fans, but with the women he's hurt. And I need to believe that he can do it. Don't ask me why it's him in particular, but I do. Because I need to believe people can change. Especially when those people have already shown us they know how to do good. Until then, come on, play it too. This is getting deep and icky, and I just want to talk about Star Trek. This is the Starship Enterprise. No, it's not really. You would think I would be able to get on to one of those ships, but I really, really can't. Because the security on them is way too tight. But Vulcan libraries? Easy to walk into. If you've got pointy ears, and my ears are kind of pointy. So, we're here to talk about Michael Burnham, who is the human-raised Vulcan, who is the main character in Star Trek Discovery the latest of the Star Trek franchises. Before we get into that, though, I just want to draw your attention to possibly one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen on Twitter. So Jason Isaacs plays Captain Lorca, the latest of the captains in the Star Trek series. An old school fan was going off about Star Trek Discovery, saying it's not really Star Trek and it's totally playing with the universe and they hate it because it's not like the original. Personally, I think we give it the first season. Then we can work out whether or not it's actually following any timelines. But this person tweeted that uh, Jason Isaacs is probably just doing it for the paycheck. He doesn't really understand Trekkies. Jason Isaacs replies with, You couldn't be more wrong. I could earn much more elsewhere. I took this gig partly 
because I love Trek, but mostly to annoy you. Oh, Captain, my Captain. That is the kind of sick burn that I come to Twitter for. And as an original Star Trek fan, yeah, Star Trek Discovery isn't going exactly the way I want it to, but it's still doing pretty good. But let's get back to Michael Burnham. And the fact that some people keep claiming she is culturally Vulcan, even though she's a human, and that's not true. I won't pretend I'm not disappointed, because I am. I prefer Vulcans over humans, and I would have much rather seen a Vulcan than a human as the main character, but that's just me. I, and also, I get that uh, playing a Vulcan can have some serious effects on the actors who play them. There's a degree of withholding emotions that affected Leonard Nimoy in the original Star Trek series. So maybe this is just a way of protecting Sonequa Martin, who plays Lieutenant Michael Burnham. Though, I don't think she's a lieutenant anymore. In one of the first two episodes, Michael rightly points out that race isn't culture. So I was hoping this would mean she would be at least culturally Vulcan. As a kid who pretended to be Vulcan a lot, it would have been cool to see a human who lived by Vulcan norms, but this isn't the case. Before I get into explaining why Michael cannot be considered culturally Vulcan, I just have two points. The first is that while I actually don't like Michael's character, I understand why I don't like her. I don't like her for the same reason I didn't like Wesley in Next Generation, or pretty much any kid in Star Trek if I'm being honest. Like Wesley, Michael is brilliant, but arrogant and that makes an adolescent rebellion unsavory to me. And Michael is going through a cultural adolescence. She's testing the boundaries of human culture and expectation because it's still very new to her. It's a natural process and necessary one for her character, but that doesn't mean I have to find it an endearing character trait. The second point is don't come at me with any of the, but culture changes, and Michael's just doing her take on Vulcan culture. Nope. It's like me reading the Tao Te Ching and deciding I'm culturally Taoist because I'm vegan. Or me following the Norse gods and deciding I'm culturally heathen. Michael isn't doing her own take. She leans on her Vulcan cultural upbringing, and I think that's fine, but it's not who she is. She is meant to represent a mixing of cultural values and norms. And that's okay too. But Vulcan culture, by its very nature, is an all-or-nothing deal for a pretty good reason. You ever see that shirt that says Vulcan on the street, Klingon in the sheets? It's a stupid shirt, not least because it implies Klingons are somehow better lovers due to their more passionate nature than Vulcans, because in doing this, it completely ignores Pontar, the mating ritual that must be undergone by all Vulcans every seven years or they will literally die. That's how passionate they are. They either have to kill someone, they get really sick, they meditate a lot and that's not necessarily a foolproof plan, or they have sex. That's how hardcore the emotions of Vulcans are. Vulcans have too many emotions. That's why they took on, and adhere quite strictly to, the teachings of Serac. So, quick history lesson. Vulcans are kind of like the Tau in Warhammer 40k, in the way that they got their act together. And also, them now being about the greater good, and is that really true when they're trying to take over the universe. They weren't always for the greater good. Way back when, Vulcans were such violent, emotional beings that they were tearing their homeworld apart. Serac shows up and says, hey, we need to control our emotions, and we need to adhere to logic, to a higher thought process, more than just, but I want revenge, but I want to kill, or we're going to ruin everything. While there's a debate about whether Serac's teachings were about controlling emotions, or just full-on suppressing them, the need for strict adherence to the rules is the same no matter what. 
Because if Vulcans weren't the button-down elfish overlords of logic and actually loosened up the way humans keep telling them they should, Vulcans would sweep across the universe in an orgy of bloodletting the likes of which has never been seen. Case in point, the Romulans, who are descendants of the Separatists from the Vulcan homeworld, and those guys are brutal. If you take their violence and put it together with the power that the Vulcans now have amassed within the universe, combined with their superior tactical ability, you're royally ruined. That's why Romulans infiltrated Vulcan High Council at one point. They wanted the power. When Vulcan young are going through their initiations, they're taught how to fight, how to survive hand-to-hand combat with mammoth beasts, to show them this is how they were, and this is still part of them. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because I like to talk about Vulcans, but also to show you there's no picking and choosing when it comes to being culturally Vulcan. For Vulcans, their culture, their philosophy, it allows them to exist in a way that is much more beneficial for everyone. They have to be strict, because a slip from that adherence to the rules could result in something terrible for them personally and catastrophic for the universe around them. Michael's not like that. She doesn't need to be like that. They need it. She can pick and choose, because she's not controlled. And while she has strong logic skills, they do not override her emotions. But more than that, and quite simply, she eats with her hands. Vulcans don't eat with their hands, but in episode 3, Michael is shown to be eating blueberries out of a bowl with her hands. Vulcans don't do that unless it's absolutely necessary. While it may seem inconsequential, the choice to eat with their hands has extreme emotional ramifications for Vulcans. It's seen as an extension of their adherence to structure, to the rules. Topol explains it as the importance of maintaining discipline in the face of adversity, even for the most seemingly inane rules in Voyager, when she masters eating a breadstick with a knife and fork. Alternatively, we've seen Spock's distress in an episode called All Our Yesterdays, when he must eat meat with his hands in order to survive. Which brings up another point. If Michael eats meat, then she's definitely not culturally Vulcan. It did seem as though the food she was eating on the Discovery was just plants, but who knows what the future will hold. And personally, I'll be extra sad on that point. Vulcans are vegetarians, if not vegans, according to the teachings of Serac. And it may seem like nothing to everyone else, but it means a lot as a vego to have representation in geekery that's incredibly meat-centric or carnist-leaning as a subculture. To have a main character who represents how I feel about eating meat, that's kind of big. And rumour has it that Vulcans are vegetarians because of the first Vulcan, Leonard Nimoy, who was a vegetarian. This is the man who came up with the Vulcan salute. He wasn't just the first actor to be a Vulcan, he also set the bar of how Vulcans present themselves for every Star Trek since. He's the reason they have pointy ears and aren't all painted red. He's part of the reason there's such a love for Vulcans and their history. So it would be a shame to muddy that just because... But Bacon but we're getting away from ourselves. Michael isn't culturally Vulcan. And that's okay. It's more than okay, because it means that through her we can explore what Star Trek has always let us explore. Identity. She can make herself into whatever she wants. And she may not be culturally Vulcan anymore, but I like to think she respects the Vulcan way of living. She understands it, and through that, I think she's going to show us how you can respect a way of being, even if it's not yours anymore. And just as a side note that has nothing to do with any of this, I hope she keeps her natural hair because she looks amazing. Let's beam off this rock, go to a dystopian future, because you can't be happy all the time. 
Welcome to a dystopian future, player two. I brought you here to this raining, dark, cold city, not to discuss Dark City, which is an awesome sci-fi film, but to talk about Blade Runner 2049. There will be some slight spoilers here, player two, but nothing that's specific, because I want you to see this movie. The first Blade Runner is about a guy who hunts down replicants, those being androids who look exactly like humans. The reason that replicants need hunting is because a band of them slaughter some humans in an off-world colony as part of a mutiny. Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is the one hunting down those mutinous replicants who had been deemed unstable, and they're also seeking to extend their lives. At this point, replicants only live for a few years, and the reasons for this are a little bit mixed. It's a matter of genetics not being able to hold up for that long, but it's often considered a fail-safe. Because if the replicants live any longer than a few years, they'll be able to pass the Voigt-Kampf test that measures emotional responses, which means they won't be able to tell them apart from humans, which everyone thinks is dangerous. Everyone who's a human, of course. That's the background, and the cool thing about the original movie is that while it's happening, you ask yourself questions about sentience and sense of self. I mean, the replicants quite obviously aren't just machines. Though it's been built into them, they're obviously beings with free thoughts, wants, desires, and the ability to suffer mentally, if not physically. Then, once the film is over, you start wondering about where rights come into play. The replicants are beings who are owned. They're slaves, manufactured to be stronger, faster, smarter, and accepting of the roles humans have decided they should perform. In the case of the original, their sin is to dare to think they could be equal with humans, even though they've been designed to be like humans. Blade Runner was also visually a masterpiece, and it's been the inspiration for so many dystopian, futuristic landscapes since. So, this latest instalment of Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, follows the same path both with story and visuals, which I thought was going to be impossible. Blade Runner wrote the rules of dystopian futures and how they should look. The use of light and dark, technology that's so neon bright it hurts your eyes, but so pretty you can't help but stare at it. I wasn't sure 2049 could do the same thing, but here we are. They got it right. The soundscapes were haunting, and the acting is on point for what's needed in this story. And I know there's been a fair few articles out there about it being misogynistic, so I wasn't sure I was ready to sit through something like three hours worth of women being plot points. And it's up to you as to whether you share that view. But once I was done and I'd really thought about the movie, I didn't see it as misogynistic at all. The strongest and most influential people in the story of Blade Runner 2049 are the women. Yes, it skirts along the edges of women in fridges, which is a term for when, in a story, a wife or girlfriend is killed in order to progress the male protagonist's storyline. It's lazy storytelling a lot of the time, and super duper insulting to two ends of the gender spectrum. Think about it, women get the position of plot points when they're killed, usually brutally, in order for dudes to care about stuff. And dudes are portrayed as the kind of people who only fight for justice and good things if the women in their lives are taken from them. Not just because, I don't know, it's the right thing to do. But I think Blade Runner 2049 actually uses that trope and twists it. So we're made to think about what it means to feel an emotional attachment to someone else and how that relates to our own sense of self. Then from there, how we decide who is someone and what is something. For the replicants, their emotional attachments and needs are the same as ours because they're built like us. But do they do things because that's what they want to do? 
or because that's how they were designed? Is their sentience real or is it artificial? There's a lot of debate around Kay and Joy. Kay is a replicant who hunts other replicants. He's a Blade Runner. He has a holographic wife called Joy. She goes from being a loving 1950s housewife to alternate rock chick to whatever he wants her to be in the blink of an eye. She serves him food, she thinks he's special, she performs all of the roles that would be needed in a proper wife. A lot of people have a problem with this relationship because it's just one of the ways that women in the film are depicted as less than not real people, but more a physical representation of what patriarchy would like them to be, which is submissive, devoted to a fault, and doe-eyed damsels. And I get that. If you look on the surface, that's what this movie is doing to the women in it. But just like when Joy serves Kay a holographic bowl of hot chips over his, quite frankly, not that appetizing looking noodle soup, it's just a cover. Kay is constantly hit with verbal abuse over being a skin job, which is a slur used against replicants. He lives in a horrible apartment building, in a city that never seems to see the sun, and it's always raining, which is totally depressing. His job is brutal and constantly demanding. He doesn't really have downtime or luxuries. His holographic wife is someone he's chosen, because who else is he going to have? Other replicants don't want anything to do with him. He's a Blade Runner. He kills replicants. That's his reason for being. He's a tool of oppression for a whole group of beings just like him. Joy is the only companionship he can have. She's the closest he comes to having a peer. The fact that he feels the need to have someone is telling in itself. He didn't create her. A society that uses beings that are capable of pain physically and mentally as a disposable workforce is what created Joy. And she's all that's available to him. Keep in mind that the majority of women seen on screen are not considered real women in the world of Blade Runner. They're replicants. They're disposable. Not because they're women, but because they're not seen as people. They have no rights of personhood, which is quite literally the point of the film. We're meant to be shocked at the treatment of beings that are obviously, to us, sentient. And that treatment by those who refuse to acknowledge it, because once they do... They can no longer have a large disposable workforce doing the jobs humans don't want to do or that are very dangerous for humans to do. We're meant to mourn their suffering because no other human in the Blade Runner universe is doing that. And interestingly, even within the ranks of the Mechanica, those technological beings that include, but that are probably not just limited to, replicants and holograms, there's a hierarchy. Joy is considered less or other by replicants who aren't K. They treat her with disdain, as disposable, as not sentient, or not sentient enough. I mean, if that's not making a comment on intersectionality within a rights movement? And there are strong themes around women and sexuality in this. Yes, there's also a lot of boobs, but I think that goes further to show the dystopian future for what it is. It's a world of excess and dehumanization. It makes sense that women are the ones being shown to be dehumanized. We're kind of further down the ladder when it comes to rights, usually. I could go on and on, but I don't want to spoil it too much, and I definitely don't mean to infer the movie was perfect, it wasn't. But I think it was trying to make a point that some people missed. Blade Runner 2049 isn't a misogynistic movie. It's a movie that highlights misogyny, and every other kind of might override oligarchical society, where one group is deemed less than, while another is afforded all the freedoms. When you walk out of it, I think you're meant to be looking around at our world now and asking yourself where suffering of others fits in your worldview. 
and whether there's anyone whose sentience you aren't acknowledging, because if you did, you'd have to admit you're aiding their suffering. And to stop it isn't convenient for you right now. See? I just totally ruined sci-fi for you. Come on, play it too. Let's get back to the tavern. Come in, sit down. Oh, have you seen this? Yeah, they're handing it out over here. It's that petition for Netflix to take Big Mouth down. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. It's an animated show. It involves Nick Kroll and John Mulaney, and that's why I decided I wanted to watch it, because I love those guys, and they're very funny. This petition, however, is trash. Big Mouth is about puberty, but it's really for people who've gone through puberty for us to all look at it and be like, oh yeah, no, that's definitely a gross thing that happens. It's meant to be a kind of getting good with being weird and gross during the time because puberty is weird and gross. The petition says it's child pornography and not suitable for children. First, m masturbation is in there a lot, and there is betrayal of private parts, but as a way of highlighting how the characters are going through these massive changes that make them want to do certain things. And second, no, it's not suitable for children. Just like there's a whole heap of animation not for kids. Why does everyone think if it's animation or video games, it's for children? It's no. I binged the entire series in one night because I have no self-control, and I found it be very funny and clever and gross. And it talks about some pretty heavy subjects, and I wish this had been around for me when I was, say, 16 or 17. It's not for everyone, but that doesn't mean it should be banned. It's certainly better than most of the sex ed classes I've ever had to sit through. If you watch a few minutes and decide it's too gross for you, that's cool. But jeez. Okay, let's get away from this. Um, some sad news is that Grape Coon has passed away. Grape Coon was a male penguin who fell in love with a cardboard cutout of an anime character over in Japan. It happened after his partner left him for a younger male penguin. He captured the hearts and minds of anime lovers. The character he fell in love with was from an anime called Kimono Friends. I've never seen it because I'm the kind of anime fan who politely takes everyone's suggestions and then rewatches the same series seven times in a row instead of watching anything new. But I'll be checking this one out, just out of respect for Grape Coon. Ooh, and keep an eye out for Necro Barista, the visual novel game. It's coming to PC and Switch in 2018. It's about a Melbourne cafe where the dead get to spend one last night walking amongst the living. It's leaning heavily on an anime feel, which is pretty cool. I better let you get back, player two, but before you go, if you can rate The Land of Pod highly on whatever app you're using it on, you can find Land of Pod on Facebook and KittyM on Facebook as well, and on Twitter at ChaosKittyM and at The Land of Pod. Until next time, player two.